Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind, in your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce. And this is going to be really interesting. So all you people out there that think you're so perfect and have nothing wrong, and have no sins, you want to read this book, None Without Sins, and you tell me that you're so perfect. Ha-ha. When a Delaware real estate mongol is murdered, newspaper journalist Brian Wilder wants a scoop on the killing, including the meaning behind, this was really cool, the mysterious loaf of bread left with the corpse. Reverend Candace Miller is called to minister to the grieving family, and she quickly realizes that the killer has adopted the symbolism of sin-eating, a Victorian-era religious ritual, as a calling card. If you want to know more, you're going to have to listen to Michael Bradley and None Without Sin. Welcome to MJ Network. This is going to be so cool. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. So, why... This is, you know, I've read... (laughs) <laughs> I've lost how many count thousands of books in the last too many years. So, how did you decide to create a novel around sin? People, you really need to think about this. So, it really kind of came from uh, an article I had read about the practice of sin eating. I had I had found this article several years ago. It was just a, it was just one of those, hey, you know, something you didn't know sort of articles. And it talked about the practice of sin eating and, uh, you know, how the, in the Victoria area, era the rich people felt they could, um, felt that they could, could get away with dying and getting into heaven by having a sin eater come to their house as they were, they were dying and place mm. a loaf of bread on the person's chest. And that was supposed to absorb their sin. And then the sin eater would eat the bread and t- obviously take on the sin of the rich person. So it was their, their way of skirting around, you know, this idea of heaven or hell. Um, so I had, I'd read this article, and it just, I said this is a great, great idea, but I, I just didn't know what to do with it, so I just filed it away um, until about uh, two years ago when I started working on, uh, working on this book, and I was trying to come up with a, some plot details, and this article kind of resurfaced in my memory. Um, which then just led into the rest of the plot about the book itself, um, you know, using the symbolism of the sin eater um, as a calling card for a, uh, a killer. And it, just, it just seemed to work well for, for the story as I was putting it together. That's the hardest thing for me when I write something, write a book. Not a review, that comes naturally to me for some reason. But when I write a book, the hardest thing is come up with the main plot. So I'm learning a lot from different people, from everybody, because I write, I write the strangest things they tell me, but it's okay. So, Brian is cool. 
Tell us about Brian and his paper. And I have to ask this question. Um, are you going to bring him back? Is this a series with the same characters or something different next time? So, so the uh, the book is the start of a, a series called the First State Mystery Series. Um, and it's, Brian will be back. Candace will be back as well. But the concept of the series is oh, more focused on a uh, – yeah, they will be back. Um, it is the series though is a is an ensemble cast. So the next book may not feature Brian and Candace, but it'll feature other people that have shown up in this first book. Um, mm-hmm. And then Brian and Candace will become the focal point of the next book. Um, so it, the focal point characters will will bounce back and forth in the series. Uh, but from 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 a Brian for Brian himself, Brian is a character that has been bouncing around in my head for maybe 15 mm-hmm. or so years. When I first started writing, I wrote a few short stories with him as the main character. And those short stories were, were, they were, they were amateurish, you know, because I was just learning the craft. But I was drawn to him as a character. And for the longest time, I, I, I just was really looking for a vehicle that I could put him in. Um, you know, my, it, he just wasn't going to fit in my first three books. Um, mm-hmm. But when I started putting this together, it, it just seemed like a natural fit to put Brian in there. I mean, he's he's this globe-trotting, or he was a globe-trotting newspaper journalist. Um, you know, wrote for Time and U.S. USA Today, and 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 all the the big magazines and newspapers. You know, was all, has been all over the world. He was an investigative journalist. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but he had this no, don't. tragic moment. In, yeah, he had this tragic moment in his life that just derailed his entire career. I mean, he was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and mm. after this tragedy, you know, his whole life kind of fell apart, and he became, you know, his his way of trying to get over it and start anew is to start this small town newspaper called the Newark Observer, which only publishes twice a week. Um, but this was his way of trying to deal with this tragedy that occurred in his life that just completely derailed everything that he had worked for for so many years. That is hard, yeah. So, this was really cool. Who is the first victim? How do you decide on the first victim anyway? And who finds him? And then what does everyone think he's not what it appeared to be? He was a real estate agent, right? But we'll yeah. find out. So yeah, so the, so you know, Roddy Reynolds. Um, I, I'm not really sure if I have a method in mind for how I pick the first victim. It, mm-hmm. It's when I first start writing, it's just I have I have a victim that needs to die, um, and <laughs> really the the, the name kind of comes almost last. You know, so it wasn't like I said, hey, I've got this Robbie Reynolds guy that I'd like to chip off. Um, it was just I need a victim, and as I was profiling this particular individual, you know, it was like, okay, well, he needs to be a bit of a celebrity. So, we'll, you know, in a small town, what might that be? Well, it might be a businessman. Um, you know, so just kind of walk through that thought process trying to outline, okay, who is he? Uh, and, you know, what is he um, – you know what does he do, and why would you know people care if he was if he was murdered, um, mm. and that sort of thing. And, and then of course you know because of the fact that I was using the the sin eater in this, 
Um, that mm. was where the idea that he can't be what he seems. He can't be this perfect, wonderful businessman who goes to church every week. He, he can't. Mm. He's got to be flawed. He's got to have a, something that, that's a secret um, that he is, you know, potentially killed for, killed over. Um, so that was kind of where, you know, you, you kind of develop it and you, you say, okay, I'm going to pull, here's Robbie, here's the secret that he's going to be killed for, which actually changed about three times during the writing of the book. And it was, mm. he, at one point he was, he was a, um, he was one thing and the next thing he was another, you know, and eventually I ended up where, you know, he's just this, he's a, a womanizer and a gambler and, and all this sort of thing that, 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 that people usually don't, wouldn't necessarily see in his public image. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of how, but, but really at the, at the end of the day, he had, Robbie Reynolds was like a name that I came up with at the very last minute. So I uh, just, he's, he's a, the victim is usually a blank slate until I, you know, you know, as far as the name is concerned. So I get to the very point where I have to name it for some reason. So. Well, all I could tell you is that there were two kinds of, um, victims, the kind that Robbie Reynolds and then go like, oh, well, he's dead. So I feel bad for him, not really. Um, or the kind that says, oh, God, how could they kill that person off? He's so good. Which is what Philip Margolin did in the last book, The Darkest Place. And when I interviewed him, I was not happy. I said, you killed off my favorite character. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's great. He is so phenomenal. I mean, he's great. He's one of the top criminal defense attorneys in the world, but he's a great writer, Philip Mongolin. And I said to him, how could you kill this person off? He thought it was getting boring. That's not for me. A lot of people said the same thing. They were not happy. Wait till they read the, le- the one I, is coming out in November. I just finished reading it, um, Murder at Black Oaks. Oh, God, is that scary. And he killed off another one. That's all I'll say. So when they well, go well, to the I, scene, I will. I will say. So I will say in that vein um, that in the first draft, I'm not going to tell you who. Um, I'll just like let you think about this. In the first draft of the book, um, one of my main characters dies at the end, um, which really upset some of the early, some of my early beta readers as well as my mm. editor. <laughs> so uh, I just leave, leave it with that. <laughs> You can't call off Candace or Brian, sorry. Now, all I can tell you is that this is why my last book is titled Population Zero, The World Without People. And it's nine worlds that you wouldn't want to live in, and I invited a dead person to experience my world to tell everybody to be nicer in this one, and they didn't quite get it. Some people got it, and a lot of people said, why could you write that? I said, because there's a world without sun, without warmth, without this ice, they didn't get it. So sad. But at least I didn't have to kill off anybody. They were already dead. So when they go to when they go to the murder scene, what do they learn? And here's another character that's interesting. Who is Pastor Miller and why is she at the home of the family? So so, you know, at the the murder scene is where you get your first at Robbie Reynolds murder scene is where you get your first um introduction yeah. to uh, the rich, the, the 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 symbolism of the sin here, which is the the bread um, mm. on the chest, the chest of the um, of a dead man, um, and, and Candace is Candace is an interesting character. She's 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 a, a pastor of a Episcopal church there in in town, and Robbie and his family actually attend her church. 
So she knows them, uh, and she's called there to, to obviously minister to the family. Um, but Candace is she's she's very unsure of herself. I mean, she's even though she's mm-hmm. she's been, been to seminary and she's been trained, she's got a few years of experience under her belt. This is her first murder scene, um, and for and she's also she's struggling with her faith, which makes this first murder scene even more difficult because she just has no she's very insecure she's very unsure of herself she um, questions everything you know even to the point where all she think, all she can think of to say to the the grieving family is a bunch of cliches mm. and she's you know she's like this is all I can do is is rattle off cliches you know what kind of you know minister am I um, but this is her first murder scene and she's very shocked by it, very caught off guard, um, and it just throws her world into a, kind of a tailspin. That that is that's scary. Any kind of any kind of murder scene, any kind of death scene is horrible. So, who is Father Blake, and what is her connection to Father Blake? And what is her reaction to the family in the crime scene? Because I could almost picture Candace's face when she sees, you know, the body and all the rest of it. So Father Blake is, um, Father Blake actually, in an earlier draft, played a much larger part in the mm. the book. Um, he um, He's a Catholic priest that's friends with Candace, the two of them. Uh, get together on our, every Saturday and play chess. Um, Father Blake is very, a very good chess player, and Candace can hold her own against him as well. Um, so they've developed a friendship over the past couple of years that that has you know flourished into this you know this weekly chess game. Um, and she looks, Candace really looks up to him. She, he's he's um, kind of not necessarily her mentor, but um, someone that she um, really feels is. Uh, what she would aspire to be, um, you mm. know, from you know the perspective of of how she would you know treat her faith and everything, because he's he's devout and you know he, he seems to have he seems to have a good grip on every, you know his life and, and everything that he has to to do. Um, but even he has um, Father Blake even has a, a secret background that haunts him. Um, and in particular, when these murders start occurring in, in the town, that haunting gets worse and progresses as well to, you know, to, to an extreme point with him. Um, you know, and, and as far as, like, Candace's reaction to the family, you know, a lot of it comes back down to her insecurities. She's, she just doesn't know how to, to respond. She doesn't know how to react. I mean, her exposure to death has always been, you know, uh, post-funeral home at a, a service where their body is laid out nice and neat in the coffin and, you know, and looks really nice and is prepared. Um, so her reactions to, to seeing Robbie Reynolds dead, seeing his vacant eyes staring at her, um, is something she's just not prepared for. So what do we learn about Robbie and who is Jessica? In relation to Brian, hmm. <laughs> Jessica O'Rourke. Um, yeah. She was another character that, that came out of the, my early writings. Um, there were three characters that are in this book that, that really kind of were in those initial short stories, and that was 
Brian and Jessica and the newspaper's receptionist, Mildred. Um, so Jessica, I like Mildred. she's just this really talented. <laughs> I did too. I really, I really, really enjoy writing. Mildred is a lot of fun to write for. Um, uh, she's just, she's just, you know, she just things will come out of her mouth that, that you just, mm-hmm. you just sit there and you go, what? <laughs> um, That's me. Jessica is just this. Yes, <laughs> Jessica is this young, young photographer. She works for the newspaper, um, and she runs, you know, she she runs like a wedding photography business uh, as well. Um, and, but she's really talented, and, and Brian really has taken to her because he, he sees in her a, uh, a younger version of himself with a, with a lot of talent and a lot of energy and a lot of, you know, she could go really far if she would just extend herself out into the world, but she doesn't want to. She, she's very happy right now to be in a small town and shooting photos for the newspaper and shooting her wedding photos and, and you know, other photography business stuff. And... But but she she's kind of a, a little bit of a, a rebel. She's she's young. She's very opinionated, very uh, vocal about her opinions. Um, you know, and she's she's a lot of like Mildred. She's fun to write for as well because you know she's just she's just got that this attitude about her that um, you know that it's just really fun to write. Um, as far as learning about Robbie, I mean, in the early early scenes, I mean, you really are just you're just learning about his family. You learn about his family, about what he's been involved in, and you you start to dig a little deeper and start to mm. find out that he is that he does have some sins in his background, that he does have some kind of um, secrets that may have been have resulted in his death. I'm writing questions as I'm looking at the book, but I don't have the questions. I'm making this is getting good. So there's murder one, there's one murder, and then what is the weapon, and what is next, and what are the similarities of the murders? So you know, the Robbie is stabbed, uh, one thrust mm-hmm. into the heart, um, and. Um, the, the next murder occurs a few days later. Um, yeah. And the big, the big similarity between them is not, the similarities are not related to how the victim is murdered. Uh, it's related to the symbolism that goes along with the sin. Yeah. Um, the, the symbolism of the bread. There's, there's a, another loaf of bread left at the, the, sec, the site of the second murder. And, and although that murder is not quite as, I don't. I don't want to say brutal because any murder is brutal. Um, yeah. Not as bloody. Um, it's it's still it's still brutal, you know, and it's still uh, sad to, to see that it's happening. And but but there's this this symbolism just keeps showing up in, in each murder as the um, as the book progresses. That's true, and each person has a sin. So what was her sin? The second person, what did she do wrong? She was, um, he was, she was actually pretty tame com- compared to, to Robbie. Um, mm. She was basically, she was a compulsive liar, and uh, that's good. That's why, that's what um, her sin was. And that was why um, she was killed. I mean, one of the symbolisms that shows up in every murder scene is just a, is a, is the, a, a word. It outlines what sin this person was killed for. 
Um, so, you know, hers is, uh, you know, she's a compulsive liar, um, which is what ultimately leads to her death. Well, considering that, there'll be an awful lot of dead people in the world if they really happen. <laughs> yeah. No, no, seriously. Now, we've got a troublemaker. Um, we have Alex, but we have Tony, and she's a troublemaker, right? Yeah, she's... Um, I like her, though. So Alex, she's got guts. <laughs> Alex, and, yeah. Al- Alex and Tony are an interesting pair. Um, you know, Alex is, is a, 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 a lecturer at the local university. He is well-versed mm-hmm. in religious, religious history. Um, but he's a very domineering individual. Um, he, you know, he wants things his way, and that shows up in his marriage to his wife, Tony, um, you know, where he is frequently just bossing her around, not physically abusing her, but, um, you know, maybe a little bit of mental abuse and emotional abuse. Uh, but, mm. you know, certainly not, he's not hitting her or beating her or anything, but, but he, 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 keeps her, he keeps her under his thumb, keeps her... Um, uh, you know, just kind of keeps her under control, you know, in, in, in his control all the time. Um, doesn't really let her get out and voice her opinions and do her things. Um, he much prefers to just have her stay at home, take care of the house, and um, do his bidding. And so he frequently, you know, it can be heard, you know, making disparaging comments towards her and that sort of thing. And, and Tony, for her part, um, just kind of takes it. Um, she, she's just very, very quiet. Um, I, you know, I delve a little bit into their background, uh, but I don't mm. really, you know, get too much into how long she has been so um, kind of beaten down. Um, you know, she, she's just, she's reached that point in her life where to her it's just, it's just, I, it's just easier for me to just, to just be, you know, to, to listen to him and do what he says. Um, she kind of reached that point, you know, in her life. Uh, but she does. She has a troublemaking streak in her as well. So I won't get into too much detail. I don't want to give it, spoil it. But she does have a little bit of a trouble, yeah. trouble side to her as well. I know. And I see it on one of the pages. Hmm. Don't <laughs> mess with these people. I'll tell you that. So... The police investigator, what are their feelings? What are the feelings of the police? They don't seem to really be into this thing. They don't realize. I guess maybe they don't understand the the, sin, the symbolism of the sin either. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, you know, this is, this is such an obscure, um, the, the, the mm-hmm. sin eater concept is just is very obscure. And, and it, mm-hmm. Not a lot of people, I mean, even, even in real life, not a lot of people are familiar with the concept, and, and you know, because it was just such a, an odd uh, practice that was, you know, done so long ago. Um, so it would certainly not be something that any police officer would mm-hmm. necessarily pick up on right away. So, you know, mm-hmm. so to, you know, obviously the police in investigating uh, Mick, the detective, he completely misses the the symbolism piece of it. He he knows that there's a connection yeah. between the murders because because the the the, the M O is the same, but but he has no concept of, of what this is, you know, and eventually, you know, he'll find out as, as time progresses through, but it's really Candace who identifies the, 
the symbolism because of her, you know, because of her background in seminary and, you know, they had, it was the sin eater concept was something that had been briefly discussed in one of her religious history classes. So she's really the one that picks up on the symbolism and, and realizes that there's something more sinister going on. I actually did some research so I would understand it. So when I wrote the review, it sounded like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> I do that a lot. Interesting, interesting fact about sin eating, the um, last known sin eater died mm. in the early 20th century uh, over mm. in England. Um, he, 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 you know, you, you would have thought that it would have died out in the Victorian era, but apparently there was one individual who still practiced it up until the early early um, 1900s. So, I think if he was alive today, he'd probably make a lot more money because there's an awful <laughs> lot of people out there. Seriously, I thought about that. I go like, just listen to the news, and maybe they could just take care of all of them. <laughs> what can I say? So... Tell us about Mick and the Chief and their relationship to Brian. Brian's brave. I like Brian. So, so, he doesn't give up either. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of his, you know, his investigative, his investigative journalism. Um, that was, that's his strong suit, you know. And, you know, and, and that's what kind of made him such a big name at one point when, in his career. Um, he's developed this friendship with Mick. Um, so Mick Flanagan is the, is the, the lone detective in Newark's police department, um, and he's developed this kind of he's developed this friendship with Mick that that's, goes beyond the journalist slash police relationship. You know, he's good friends with Mick, and they, they they chat, they talk. Mick often shares details with Brian that he probably shouldn't be sharing with the press, um, but Brian, on the other hand, understands and respects the need to keep those details to himself until they're officially made public. So Brian gets that opportunity to, um, mm. to kind of get a, get the scoop on what's going on. Um, Lyle Jenkins, the police chief, on the other hand, tolerates Brian. Um, there's some mutual respect between the two of them, but um, Lyle sees Brian as more of a... Uh, that's the word I'm looking for, as a, a necessary evil. Um, because, mm. you know, obviously Brian, Brian is in a close-knit community. Um, you know, people, you know, look to the, the newspaper for information. So, you know, Lyle kind of accepts that Brian is there and that Brian's going to be part of whatever is going on, um, but he's not always happy about it, you know. So there is... There's a little bit of animosity between them, you know, although it's, it's mm. not to any significant degree where, you know, Brian might get arrested or something like that. But, but, but when, you know, when Lyle sees Brian show up at a crime scene, he, he's kind of like, oh, not again, uh, sort of thing. So. so how, there was a teen, how was a teen found? And why is Andrew there and Candace too? And who's Andrew? Andrew is Father Blake. Um, so, um, mm -hmm. so it's Father Andrew Blake, who we spoke about earlier. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the girl is the second victim in the murders. Yeah. And, and she, um, you know, her, her mother finds her, um, finds her body. And, you know, she is a, um, she's a member of Father Blake's congregation, of Andrew's congregation. Um, and Candace just had the, Candace and Andrew happened to be together 
at the time when Andrew got the call. Um, and because, you know, Andrew is a little shaken up by the news, particularly considering it's the second murder in the, in the, the, mm. the town, you know, Candace is, you know, she's like, hey, let me walk, let me drive you to the, this crime scene, you know, so you can focus on what you need to do. Um, but that also puts Candace at the crime scene uh, with him, um, which then creates, you know, a whole new set of, of issues, particularly when she discovers the, um, when she discovers the, um, the same symbolism of a sin eater at the crime scene at, of the second mm. victim as was in the first. So why does she, I can understand this happening. She's seeing so many murders and she's supposed to comfort people, so why does she rethink that maybe this is not the right job for her? And what is her sin? So Candace has just always been insecure about the calling. Um, even before the murder started, she has always kind of felt out of place. Um, sometimes felt like she just mm-hmm. wasn't, she just wasn't in the right the right place for a right job. You know, maybe she was wrong in her calling. Um, so obviously, something like this, like these murders that occur in the town, they're going to shake mm-hmm. up any any insecurity that may exist prior is going to be, um, you know, enlarged. It's going to be become much bigger and you know she's struggling just to deal with her feelings of the situation her grieving of the situation as well as dealing with the grieving families and trying to you know show them you know what what they need to do you know she's struggling herself and rethinking well maybe this really wasn't the right career for me because I can't even do my the basics for my for my job I can't even come to these grieving families and provide them true comfort because all I can think about is is ridiculous cliches and, and you know, I'm, I don't think to even pray for people, you know, or any mm. of that. So for her, you know, immediately her concern, her thoughts are maybe just just isn't right for me. Maybe I need to, to quit because I'm just not cut out to be, mm. you know, a minister. So she, so it just, it just heightens her already, the, the insecurity she already feels, um, you know, she's already feeling in her life. Well, people get that way after a while, especially with all these tragedies, and there comes a third one. So we have yep. another victim, and this one is different. And what is this person's sin? So this is um, this particular woman uh, was killed. Um, and this one gets kind of, this is like the most brutal of the, the murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, found, uh, she's found outside in the woods. Um, and she's found with her, her baby who's alive. The baby's not killed. The baby is, is, is healthy and alive. Um, but she is, is brutally attacked and left in, in the woods. And um, it, it just, it, it just, it, it seems like the, the brutality is getting, you know, a little bit worse as the, the murders continue. And, and she is labeled a child killer, uh, which relates back to something that she had, has in her past. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and it just, it's kind of sad because Brian's the one that discovers her. Um, Candace th- th- doesn't really have a, any connection 
and neither does uh, uh, actually I think Andrew is Andrew has a connection to her her family because they go to his church but um, Candace doesn't really have a connection to it so it, it's one of those things that she almost kind of stumbles upon you know it's not like she drove, drove Andrew to the, the crime scene she just kind of stumbles upon the fact that something's going on and she shows up and finds the exact same symbolism which just scares her even more um, it is it's scary, very scary but before I forget Monday um, Dead Man's Leap and on the 10th, um, Heroes Ever Die. And on the 16th, The Orientation Book. On the 18th, Sanctuary. And we're going to end this. We're going to have um, yeah, the Hooker Avenue and uh, Spies of Gypsies and Swarm and Botero Show. And the 25th, ah, Face to Die For and Captive. The one and only Iris Johansson. And that's just hmm. August. Wait till you see September. I don't know how I did this, but I don't have any dates until December, people. That's it. They're keeping me busy. And it, it's getting tough, yeah, because I just filled about two or three or four in December. I'm not going to do the whole month. And then I've got a couple in January, a couple in February. And definitely have to have a week to go shopping in December. Very important. Seriously. <laughs> so. But my my husband is thrilled that I have all these interviews because he keeps me out of the stores. But there's not that many stores around here that are open. But the ones that are, you know, you can't resist it once in a while. So this character, hmm, I didn't like him that much, Alex. And what is his thing with Samantha? You know Alex really. Alex Brennan um, is, mm. um, I'm trying to think how to, how to describe him without giving too much away. He's, he's greedy. He's arrogant. He is, mm-hmm. um, he's an intellectual. So I will say he's smart. Um, you know, so he, he teaches at the, the college, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but he, he very much has a very deep-rooted um, evil about him. I don't know if evil is the right word, but yeah, evil is the right word. Um, you know, he wants he wants what he wants, and if he doesn't get it, he will do whatever he can to get it. Um, so, I, and, and Samantha at one point was something that he wanted, and he did get her, um, despite the fact that, that he's, he's married to Tony as well. Um, so there's a little, little fling thing going on there between Alex and Samantha. Uh, but Alex, Alex is really, he, he's really got a nasty streak to him. Um, he was uh, a bit challenging to write because I, I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to write just this stereotypical abuser um, where he's just, you know, he just beats on his wife and things like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, there, there's a, in the, the early drafts of the of the, the book, there there's actually a whole a whole section that's more about from his point of view, and you mm-hmm. you you learn how how nasty he really can be. Um, but you know, it, in order to to get more mystery and built into it, and to to, to kind of build some more suspense, I, I ended up taking that that point of view out. But there was this there were several chapters that actually were were from his point of view, and you got to hear you know and learn a lot more about about how 
how terrible he really is. Um, but you know, he he was a difficult character to write because it was it was you know I was it just was he was hard to to, to put put together when I was writing this book. Um, yeah, this this was actually one of the hardest books I've written so far, um, just because of the complexity of some of the characters. Well, there are a lot of people like Alex in the world that actually I think they're justified for what they do, and they don't they don't see past what they what they think they are, and even though people might see them, they think that you know how could you think that about me? I'm perfect. You know they don't see themselves right. as the way anybody else would. So if he looked in the mirror, he would probably say, "I'm gorgeous, I'm wonderful, I'm great," and somebody else would say, "You better look deeper because that's not who you are." I think I got yeah. that. So who is Agatha, and what does she reveal? I still like Mildred. Uh, Agatha. <laughs> Agatha Bowman. She is. She is your. Um, she's one of those. She's 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 the elderly lady who always volunteers for everything. Um, yeah, I know, and I like for Agatha. Any community event, any type of event that that needed help, she. You know, volunteers. She, she's in her 80s, uh, but she's still, you know, she's out there. She's you know, every year when the the town has their big festival. You know, she's manning the information mm-hmm. booth. She's telling people where to go. And um, I guess is you know a devout churchgoer at Candace's church, and she's, you know, she's very caring and very kind. Um, but Agatha has a really dark secret as well. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to. Mm. It, it, it's a it's a it's a pretty pretty dark secret. Um, but she has a dark secret as well that that after years and years and years and a string of murders that are occurring in town that she no longer feels she can hide. Um, so she decides that she, it was time to mm. confess, but not but not to the authorities to Candace, which puts Candace in even a in worse shape because here's this woman that she saw as being an angel, you know, she was a woman who, you know, who just mm. exuded goodness and caring. And then she finds out that, you know, Agatha did something in her past that that's just absolutely horrible. And it just, it, again, it's another thing. It just throws Candace into, into a tailspin. I like Agatha. And so what what she did before? What can you say? Sometimes you just you know I know there are a lot of people like that in this world that hide what what really happened before, and until they die, whatever or before, then you don't know because then they confess. So this was interesting. Candace takes a voice recorder because she's going to talk to Samantha. So what is revealed that would hurt her and Samantha's business? Because Samantha, she wasn't so wonderful. Yeah, Samantha's a Samantha's a therapist in town. Um, she's got a little yeah. little bit, little practice going. Um, Candace has this, you know, came into possession of a small voice recorder that that mm. um, had a lot of secrets on it of people around the town. Um, and it's linked to Samantha and her business, um, and Samantha's unaware of it. So you know, it's up to you know, Candace now is faced with, okay, do I, do I talk to Samantha? Do I tell her? Because this this could you know, 
potentially destroy her business, could destroy, destroy Samantha's career, um, could bring legal legal challenges to Samantha as well. Um, so, you know, Candace is faced again with this this decision, you know, do I go to my friend and reveal to her that, you know, there's a there's a big problem in her business, um, mm. in her, you know, her practice. Um, and she's, you know, again, Candace just starts to, to, to break down because she just no, doesn't know what to do at this point. She, she really doesn't. There's all these things that are happening around her, and she simply doesn't know how to deal with any of them. So do they ever figure out who did these murders? Do they ever figure it out? Yes. Yeah, they do. At the end of the book, they, they, they discover who is responsible. Um, uh, and, and, and it's not... It, it's a, it's a kind of a, a sad ending to a certain degree because, yeah. you know, it, it just... I, you know, I, I kind of feel... I felt a little... When I wrote the ending, you know, I was... And it revealed who the murderer was. I, I kind of had mixed feelings about it because I, I kind of felt like um, the reasoning that the murderer did the, the murders was was not necessarily. It was it was it was kind of selfish, um, but mm. in in a twisted mind in a twisted world, there you could almost see there being some justification. Um, but you'd have to be kind of in a twisted world in order to really see that. Um, yeah. There are a lot of people that are. Now, this part was really good. I just wrote it. I'm looking at, my, at the book that's in front of me. This one, I forgot to ask the question, but we're getting there. We have about 15 minutes. Sarah. Brian keeps thinking about Sarah. How did you create the scenes with Sarah? Because it's going to take people a, a while to realize just what Sarah, who she was or is. So, Sarah, um, when I first created Brian like 15 or so years ago, um, mm. he had this tragedy, back this tragic backstory, and Sarah was in the tra- that tragic backstory at that time. Um, the his response to that tragedy um, is heightened by Sarah. Um, and, and I am really trying not to give anything away here. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Sarah was involved in the tragedy, and, and 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 because of the haunting that he is, because he's so haunted by what happened, um, Sarah has remained with him uh, throughout his life, um, and he 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 almost she almost. Trying to think what the right word would be. She is almost like his his conscience, almost. Um, yeah, she centers him a lot is, too. She centers him. She she really does, and she always has. Um, she has always been the center of his life. Um, she has always been, and she still is in this book. Um, but you know. The, but this tragic past that he has interferes sometimes with his life, with his his um, with his relationship with Sarah as well, and uh, and his relationship with his daughter uh, Allison. Um, you know, mm. they have an they're they're estranged. He has a strange relationship with his daughter, 
um, that, again, can be pointed back to his relationship with Sarah and his relationship or, and, and the tragic past that he has been through. Um, so, so Sarah's always been there, um, even in the early early interpret, even my, in my early writings of, of Brian, uh, but she's, mm-hmm. she's playing a much bigger part in this book. She's become much more a part of, of the story than she had when I w- w- wrote her in the past. I could use a Sarah. Everybody does. I told, my sister died in a very unusual way, very strange circumstances, not not very good. And um, ever so often, if I see the clouds are pink, I'll say, Marsha Joyce, you're there. Now tell me what to do. Because she used to fix everything. And it's, it's, it's sad. Everybody needs somebody to talk to once in a while. So yeah. these next three questions should be interesting. Alex. How did you create the scenes with his wife, but nobody realized what kind of a monster he was, and why didn't she just take a hike? <laughs> um, I would. Oh, God. So, yeah. I, well, I, I think, you know, I, I don't delve too much into the past with them. They mm. have, they've been married for, uh, Alice and Tony have been married for about 20 years. Um and, and, and although I don't, I don't delve too far into into the past with them, you know his his dominance over her was a was a, a slow process. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was a a slow over the years. He just slowly broke her, um, and you know it placed you know just at some point she just gives up. And, and there are signs, you know, there, there's throughout the book there are signs of the of the mm. control that he has, um, and, and the people are reluctant to to, to say anything uh, because there there isn't any there's no bruises there's no there's no broken bones there's no physical abuse you know mm. it's like okay is there really something going on or is this just the way that they respond to each other you know she's never spoken out. You know, do you interfere? Do you, you know, do people stick their nose out and say, you know, you know, maybe there is something going on, and maybe I should say something, versus, you know, I just don't have enough evidence, so I'm just going to leave it alone and not cause make waves. And I and I think, you know, when I wrote when I wrote this situation with the two of them, I kind of felt like that was the way a lot of people respond to. Mm. Uh, you know things that you're unsure about. You know you see something and you're not quite sure if it's right or wrong. It's like, all right, mm. do I embarrass myself with the chance that I'm wrong, or do I just wait until maybe there's real evidence? Um, and, I, and I think that people have, would have a tendency to just kind of, you know, say, okay, I'm just going to wait because I just don't know. And, and that was that was the, you know really what I was trying to go for with, with Alex and, and and Tony was, you know, Father Blake sees sees it and he wonders. Brian sees it and he wonders, um, but without, you know, but there's always that, you know, do I say something when I don't mm. really know? Um, so, you know, so that was kind of what I was aiming for with this was, you know, people just kind of turn the other cheek because they're just not sure. Well, when they read the ending, and I'm not going to say what it is, they'll get to know what people really thought about Alex in a way. That's all I'll say about yeah. that. Yeah, I just read that again and go like, yeah, that sort of pretty much says it all. If he were alive, he might rethink about the fact that this is what happened. Or if he's not alive or he is alive, he might have to face the truth about himself. 
So as a result, how is all of this affecting both Candace and Andrew? And why does Andrew begin to rethink himself too? And what is his sin? Andrew. Um, I like Andrew though. Yeah, I, I, Andrew was Andrew was was uh, you know he was he was another character that I enjoyed writing for. Um, he um, Andrew has has a, a is, is not in New he's not in Newark um, necessarily by. I don't know if choice is the right word. Um, he, he's, he's there. He, he was placed in Newark to, to give him some space, to give him some breathing room, because he himself has a tragic past from a previous mm. church that he was assigned to in Pittsburgh. Um, and and it's, a, it's a past that has haunted him uh, since, since it happened. And, uh, you, you know, the... the you know, he was shuffled around and brought to Newark because it was supposed to be a quiet neighborhood where he could, uh, I guess, recover, um, could, could, you know, kind of be a little, be, have an easy assignment while he tries to come to terms with his past and, and this tragic event that occurred. Um, and the murders themselves that happened in Newark don't help the situation. As a matter of fact, they, they spark challenges to him, making him come to, to you know, to face his darkest, darkest secrets in his past again, uh, because they remind, just, just because of the violence and the things like that, it just brings back, you know, the tragedy that he was involved in himself. So now I can't find the other five questions, so I'm going to ask this one. This is a question usually the hardest thing when I when I write anything is to say where the story takes place. Very weird. So how did you decide this small particular town? How did you create the the place where this story took place, the small town in Delaware? Because that's the hardest thing to come up with a town that small, and yet you don't want it that small. You want people to want to feel that they belong there. So how did you create the setting for this story? So I I tend in all of my books I tend to use real settings as much as possible um, mm-hmm. because I think it I feel it creates a sense of reality. Um, my my first book was set in Philadelphia. My third book um, that air was set in Philadelphia as well. Um, my my second book was in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, and and all of those had general settings that actually existed. They had actual landmarks in the books. Um, in order to, to, to add some realism. And, and it actually, you know, I've gotten comments from readers that are like, you know, I read your book and mm-hmm. I know exactly where you're talking about because I've been there. I've been to this, this place. I've been to that place. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're referring to. Um, and so it gives mm-hmm. the reader a little bit, a little sense of, of, you know, reality. So when I went to write this book, um, I decided to drop it into Newark, uh, Newark, Delaware, which is a, a, tr- a real city. Um, the University of Delaware is there. It's 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 up in the north northern mm. part of Delaware, uh, right on the Pennsylvania state line. Um, so I based the, the the fictional city on the real city of Newark. Um, the street names are the same. I changed the business name, mm. the names of the businesses and things like that, just it, it, because I don't want to you know, get sued uh, for you know doing something you know making a business look bad, but, but if, you, if you go to Newark, you'll find some of the landmarks there. The, the, the church that Father Blake 
the Catholic Church that Father Blake uh, mm. uh, runs is is at the corner of Main Street and Chapel Street. It's named differently, but you'll find that building there. Um, the building that's, that I put the Newark Observer in is a real building on Main Street. It's, it's not a newspaper. Mm. Uh, it's some, something else. But, you know, I like to add that kind of realism to, you know, my stories uh, so that, you know, people could who read it could go, hey, you know what? I've been to that place. I've seen that cemetery. I've seen that church. I've seen that, that building. Um, gives people a sense of reality uh, when, I, when I plug in real locations. So, and I'm also absolutely terrible at creating a fictional world um, where, and keeping track of it. You know, I, I, if, I, if I had to create a completely fictional city, I probably would have in one chapter the bank on the west side of town mm. and on another chapter on the east side of town because I'm just terrible at keeping track of that sort of thing. So for me, it was, it, it's also easier to say, you know what, here is this real town um, that I'm basing this on, and here's the street. This is what the map the map looks like, um, and also it, you know it's a place where I can go to get to research. Mm. Uh, if I want a detail that I can't get, you know, without a face to face, I can get in the car and drive down to drive down to Newark, and I can go in, walk around town, look at the mm. you know, main street, and look at the the, the the buildings and sort of thing, and get you know tidbits from it that I couldn't get if I had made up a scene. Well, I'm leaving out the next question because it will give away something that upset me at the end of the book. But thank goodness it didn't turn out awful. That's all I'll say about that. So what is okay. what is next for you, what is next for you and what is next for Brian and Candace and whatever we're bringing back next? And where can everybody find out about you and all of your work? And, of course, um, let me explain to everybody that I have read so many books that if I kept every one of them, I wouldn't be able to find me. But if you look at my desk, my computer desk here, you can't find me. I've got 50 more interviews, and all the books are just staring at me and say, when is it my turn? Then what happens is when I'm done with the book, I put it in a bag, and my dermatologist gets everything because his wife loves me. So... <laughs> um, yeah, Dr. Mermelstein's wife loves me for I don't know why, but she does, and he I, I can't go there without um, books. I'm serious. So when I went to visit him last week just to say hi, I bought 40, and then he said to me, um, I really want you to see if you could get Daniel Silver to review. Well, they sent it to me, so he's getting it too. That's why I get there. So this is going in his pile also of books to read. Okay. His wife has like five bookcases in different houses, and she said, because of me, she doesn't have to go to the library anymore. <laughs> so she's getting that. So what's next for you, and where can everybody find out about you and your work? So I am currently working on a, a the next book in the First State Mystery Series. It's called uh, Those Who Shall Die. Um, mm-hmm. Brian is in the book, but he's Brian is in the book, but he's not a focal point. Uh, focal point character. He's, he's more of a minor character. Um, but the book focuses on five best-selling authors who all live in a, in a general area and they um, frequently work together and collaborate um, mm. and somebody starts to kill each of them off. So stay tuned for that. Um, and as far as where you can find me, uh, I'm online at uh, mbradleyonline.com. That's my website. You can find out about all my books there. There's links to my social media. 
as well as my mm-hmm. blog. I, I frequently do interviews with other authors as well as post uh, book reviews for books that I've read myself. Um, so mm-hmm. you can find all that on uh, at mbradleyonline.com. That is really good. I'm looking at this publishing because I'm writing another book, but I haven't decided which one I want to write yet. I have three titles that I came up with. I write from the point of view of the dead body behind the gray stone. My face is behind the stone series, which seems to be nice. And then I just got interviewed last week by Dr. Maxine Thompson on Authors First for my book called Sisters, Two Sisters from the Bronx, in memory of my sister. I wrote ten stories about stuff that we used to do when we grew up and how we got in trouble. It was really cool. So I'm debating whether to write another one for that or whatever, but... I'm learning a lot as I interview everybody. I learn different different things about how different people decide how to pick their sceneries and their characters. But I want to thank you so much. Do you do ever do panel shows and stuff like that? Because I do a lot uh, I, of that I'm too. Happy, I'm happy to do them. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done a couple. I've done, done some panels and discussions at, at some conferences. Um, mm-hmm. um, not so much like online or anything like that, but you know, I'm I'm always available to speak to uh, writers groups and and you know any conferences or anything like that. So I'm always open to that sort of thing. I, I love. Well, my panel like shows that. are so. really different. We're very different. You never know what I'm going to come up with. Now I'm doing one um, <laughs> with Charles Salzberg, my favorite other person, Vincent Dandry. I love Vincent, and Dick Belsky. And we're going to talk about violence on TV and the fact that kids oh, are watching okay. video games. Yeah, I, I love doing stuff that nobody else is going to think of. You never know what I'm going to do next, yeah. Um, Charles Charles does true crime, and I watch true crime. So we're going to talk about true crime, and we're going to talk about video games and how children are learning to be violent, unfortunately, from what they're watching on television and some of the things that I see in the news. Sometimes I, I play on one of those. But I want to thank you so much. This has been fun. Everybody, do something different today. When you walk outside, say something nice to somebody. Do an act of kindness. It would be really nice. Everybody have a great day. Michael, thank you so much. Everybody had a great day, and bye. Thank you.